listening to a slightly unusual edition of Sharp Scratch. Usually we have a bunch of regulars to chat through some of the issues and concerns that affect med students and junior doctors. But this week, we're just going to be talking to someone from the General Medical Council. I'm Anna, and I'm a final year medical student at King's, and I'm also the editorial scholar here at the BMJ. We've had loads of questions from listeners about their situation during these uncertain times, so we got in touch with the GMC to give us a hand in answering some of them. We spoke to Professor Colin Melville, who works with the GMC. First, let's hear a little bit about what he does there. My official title is Medical Director and Director of Education and Standards at the GMC. I guess it covers kind of two broad remits. There's the the wider medical director role, which is to advise the GMC on contextual matters. And the second is, you know, one of one of the overarching responsibilities that the GMC has is to oversee all stages of medical education and training. And although we don't regulate medical schools, we do oversee the quality of what's delivered by medical schools and therefore the fact that all our students, at the point they apply for graduation, should have met the outcomes for graduates, uh, which is one of our key documents. I think just to get a bit of background before we go into some of the questions that we've had um, from final years slash new doctors, um, I guess what I would like to hear is kind of where the GMC sits in terms of these other bodies, because I think that you know, we hear about the GMC and we sort of have an understanding that the GMC gives you a number and um, probably, correct me if I'm wrong, if you do something bad, they might take that number away. And I think that that's probably the kind of understanding that most medical students have um, of what the GMC does. And obviously at the moment, um, there's other bodies that are kind of involved in all of this planning for these interim F1s. So you've got, you know, like Health Education England, you've got the UK Foundation, foundation program um office um the medical schools council obviously has a role as well um so yeah could you tell me a little bit about sort of where the gmc fits within all of these other things which are quite difficult to keep track of if you're a med student yeah well i, I don't think it's isolated to medical students um actually and i i think um it's a bit of an ambition here isn't there that probably before i joined the gmc my my view about the role of the GMC was not dissimilar to most other people. Basically, you pay your money to them and you hope you don't hear anything else because usually that would be bad. We are set up in legislation as the independent regulator for doctors. So that's our kind of top level. And we have three broad responsibilities to decide who can go on the register, to oversee all aspects of training and to take action where there is concern about a doctor. And obviously it's that last one which tends to be what people have heard of. In terms of what happens for students, of course, um, we don't regulate higher education. Uh, Higher education falls under a different regulator, and in fact different differing regulators in each of the four countries, just to add to the complexity. Now, what we do is say that because of our remit in uh, who can join the register, we say in order to join the register, you must complete these outcomes. So that's how we, as it were, influence uh, how schools set up their curricula. So we don't determine the curricula. We don't decide in what order it's taught. 
but universities have to demonstrate that the way their curricula is structured meets our requirements in order to grant provisional registration. These other bodies, as you refer to them, uh, is this combination of kind of regulators and arm's length bodies, uh, phrases you may may have heard of, often gets abbreviated to ALB. Um, but it's quite muddled in the sense that for, for example, the implementation and delivery of medical education sits with the statutory education bodies. So that's health education in England, for NHS education for Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland Medical and Dental Training Agency, and in Wales, uh, Health Education and Improvement Wales. So they don't even have similar titles, which is perhaps uh, why some of the confusion exists. Then, of course, you've got a group of organisations which are responsible for running the NHS. So in England, it's called NHS England. So in some um, some of the countries, they're combined with the bodies I've already mentioned. So in a way, it's not surprising that it's a bit confusing to understand. And if I then make it even more complicated by saying that health and education are devolved powers, it means that Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales have some uh, independent, or not some, they have independent uh, yeah. rights in terms of how, um, uh, how training and delivery of those two functions uh, occurs. So our role, in a sense, is to oversee as an independent regulator. So we don't answer to government, we answer to parliament. That's set out in the Act, so we're truly independent. But what we seek to do is to work with these other people so that there is a consistent message going out to the profession and where it's relevant to the uh, employing organisations. So we have responsibility around the environment for training. So in England they're called trusts, but in the other three countries they're called boards. Uh, of course there's no NHS in Northern Ireland, it's the health and social care. So again, it's perhaps not surprising, it's a bit confusing for people. So I'm not sure if that's actually helped you, but at least perhaps it's unpacked some of the complexity. Yeah, and I think that's important. Um, I do think it's important for people to understand that these things are going to differ depending on where you work. And also that, you know, it's kind of, it's okay to to be starting, um, starting out as a, you know, a new interim F1 maybe not having as good an understanding as you might like of these things because it's it, you know it's not something that they really teach us at medical school um you just kind of pick up this information from you know doctors on the wards and people who are kind of more senior than you who are like going through these processes um and i guess because it's been accelerated so much this year there's been less time for people to absorb you know absorb this information by kind of osmosis so I think what I'm interested in is sort of because I've had a lot of questions about how these interim roles are going to be sort of governed and will I be able to leave whenever I want um how is it going to affect my progression into my F1 post and I think my understanding is that is more controlled by the UK FPO so kind of what is the relationship between the the GMC and the, the people who run the kind of foundation programme? Yeah, no, okay, no, that's a good question. So um, kind of just referring back a bit to what I've just said perhaps might, might be helpful. So we oversee um, the regulatory components of this, 
But how it's delivered on the ground would sit with UKFPO in collaboration with the four different countries and the way they roll these things out. So what the legislation says is that when you graduate, you can only be employed. So provisional registration only allows you to be employed in an F1 programme. So in order to try and be helpful to everybody, um, we, we, we say that these posts by contractual definition should be called F1 LAT, where LAT stands for Locum Appointment for Training. That makes it very clear that it is for training, but it was also uh, with the intention of trying to help the service understand that these are people who've come into the system uh, in advance of the traditional time. So that's why they're called F1, uh, F interim year one. I think that's the right way around. That was a decision taken by the education bodies. But the key point is that it is still, uh, it should still be operated and delivered as a training program. You cannot be in a service post. So, you know, things like trust grades and other um, sort of locally employed doctor type scenarios, fellows and so on. You can't do that with provisional registration. You have to have full registration. So this was the point that we were trying to say, these these are the people who have um, willingly put themselves forward to the front line but we need to make sure that they're given the proper protections and support uh, and therefore we need to signal very clearly to employers these are not people you can just stick at the front line of a coronavirus type ward for example that they need to be looked after so i guess before we go into the the questions that I've got the other kind of thing that I kind of personally had to ask was so the the communications that you had um kind of for so long were about you know there's there's currently no plans to to move the provisional registration forward and um I mean I guess it must just be like it's a huge logistical thing isn't it to, to get all these people into the workforce and I assume that you you know you have a a, a plan and it it has this sort of year-long um kind of planning period to like get these people into the workforce in august um and i know that a lot of my colleagues were very surprised when they heard the the speech from matt hancock saying that people were going to be kind of accelerated into these posts and i just wondered if you could say anything about like the kind of pressures that that you were under to to kind of get this done because you've done it so quickly like um it's crazy, especially the, I mean, the uh, one of the questions that people asked me to ask you was how long it was going to take for them to get their provisional registration. And then <laughs> like 8.30 this morning, I see on Twitter, like everyone's already got their provisional registration. So yeah, I just wonder what was kind of the sort of thinking behind bringing everything forward in this way. So, so obviously, the, so first thing to say is that, you know, this is a process that happens every year. We, as you probably know, go around to all the schools so we know who the students are. We've already, as it were, uh, got them in our list. Uh, and so then ordinarily what would happen is we'd set this up so that when a, when a university sends us what is called a sealed list, that doesn't mean something inside an envelope, by the way, it has a university seal on it, which I guess a long time ago may have well been a wax seal but is now just an embossed piece of paper usually. In other words, something official that says 
This group of students have met the requirements for the award of the degree. They have no outstanding fitness to practice issues because that was one of the things we said. We cannot register someone who does. Uh, and therefore, pretty much, that would roll automatically and we'd have some time between now and uh, August um, to release the information that says you're registered. So at one level, it was simply about bringing a process forward. Um, as you rightly suggest, um, there's been a huge effort uh, on behalf of my colleagues. I'm not directly involved in that process, but huge numbers of people who've made sure that the systems that sit behind this could make it happen. Um, our comms team have worked really hard to make sure we get the right messages out, both to schools and to individual students, so the process was clear. You've probably seen some uh, stuff very recently from us on Twitter that describes that process in a little animated um, video. We've worked, uh, one of my colleagues has worked very closely with Medical Schools Council to make sure that the medical schools themselves were uh, aware of the processes and also some of the important kind of implications, I guess. So one of the things we were saying is, look, please don't graduate your students until the process is set up. Because at the point they graduate, they're probably no longer students, but they can't work as doctors. So we needed to make sure that we kept that as small as possible, as short as possible. Uh, and in fact, um, what we did was to, to, to work with UKFPO so that they would know that when someone got their registration, which uh, interim post they would be going into to keep the timeline as short as possible. So yeah, a huge amount of work by a huge number of people, not just uh, within the GMC, across the education bodies, medical schools, medical schools council, UKFPO, all working behind the scenes to, to make this happen. That's great, thank you. Um, so I'm going to go on to some of the questions that we've got from our finalists slash new doctors. So the first one is from uh, Jody, who asks about whether this registration that's been given is is it exactly the same as the registration that would have been given under normal circumstances in August or is there any additional limits on what these interim FY1s are allowed to do in terms of their clinical practice? So the short answer is there is no difference. So the requirement for, for provisional registration, as I said, was that the university uh, can determine that the student has met the outcomes for graduates. So the short answer is they are no different to anyone else who graduates at any time between now and uh, end of July to work in August. Clearly, uh, the current circumstances um, can have a bit of an impact on um, the roles that they might be deployed into, um, and obviously at the moment, at least until August, they won't be in the role or the programme that they have been allocated by UKFPO from August. So there are, in that sense, there's a bit of difference. And then there's the advice we give more generally, uh, which is all on our website, which is about acting within your competence, seeking appropriate advice. So those principles are the same, but I absolutely uh, accept that you know, there may be a higher level of nervousness, not least because it came in a slightly unprepared way. People were planning for August and suddenly it's got pulled forward to April. So I can see that that might make people more nervous. But, you know, I would be really confident that the system will, number one, welcome new graduates 
And number two, want to make sure that they're properly supported and valued in these roles because, you know, these are the people and those coming after them who are the future senior doctors of our country. So we need to nurture them and look after them. And I would be supremely confident that across the piece, that's what we'll see. Thanks, Colin. We're just going to take a quick pause while we hear from our sponsors. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Okay, back to the interview. Um, So the next question I've got is from Izzy and she wondered what kind of processes would be in place in the event that an interim FY1 doctor had a complaint made against them between now and August. Yeah, so uh, obviously when you're a student, um, you come under the university's fitness to practice guidance and of course we've published advice both for medical schools and for students on that. Once you're on the register, and now basically until you determine to remove yourself from the register, so that would apply to me, I'm still on the register even though I don't work clinically at the moment, any complaint that's made about any doctor who's on the register would be considered in the normal way that we do with every um, other complaint. So if I come back to my point about, you know, if you act within your competency, you understand the limits of of what you can um, do need to be accountable, keep good records, raise concerns appropriately. All of those things are what we, what we should all be doing um, all the time. Um, if it did come to a complaint, then as with any other, number one, we take the circumstances into account. I, I think people still have some concern about that. I, I understand that, but I just want to reaffirm that we do take circumstances into account, and particularly the system related issues that may have led to it and then every case is considered on its specific facts which makes it very hard as you can imagine to kind of um to generalize but i i don't think that i genuinely and i know it's as easy for me to say i'm much harder perhaps for people to 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 uh, lock into but if you were doing a good job You've got nothing to fear. You should not have anything to fear. I mean, I have worked... uh, I graduated in 1983. I can't do the maths. It's it's, it's a bit of a long while ago. I have never, as it happens, had a complaint made against me. So I can't say I know what it's like if that happens. But I think I... You know, I just want to emphasise that for the vast majority of doctors, if you're doing a good job and you're acting professionally, you have nothing to worry about. That's great. That's really reassuring. 
the next question is so um we know that um you have kind of a certain length of time that's allocated to you to in order to kind of convert I don't know if that's the terminology that you use but convert your provisional registration to full registration so if for instance I was a a final year medical student recently graduated um doctor and I provisionally registered myself in this period that you've just had um, but I chose not to take up an interim FY1 post would there be any implications for you know would that factor into that time that I have in order to convert to a full registration? Let me see if I can um, answer that back to front so if you graduate in a normal year you would start in August and you have under the recent change in the regulation up to three years to become fully registered. If at the three-year point you have not met the criteria to be fully registered, there is an, a kind of an automatic way that you can gain an extension, and that sits with the foundation program to, to request that. So here we are in this scenario where, in effect, you're a kind of three-slash-four months ahead of that. The same rule would apply. So if you were in the rather unfortunate, and, and I have to say it's an incredibly exceptional circumstance, what would happen is if it, effectively you would be running up to it in April instead of July, and the foundation programme would request an extension if that was appropriate. Otherwise, unfortunately, at that point, you would fail to be provisionally registered and yeah, you would lose your registration. I don't have statistics, and if you want them, I can go and find them, but that is an exceptionally rare circumstance Um, and usually someone who's in that situation will have but I'm going to use the word struggled I know it's not a nice word but you know struggled through their undergraduate training as well so it'd be very unusual to find someone who's had no prior difficulties to suddenly find themselves in a place in provisional registration where they just can't achieve the outcomes and gain that certificate of experience for full registration. So in terms of um, getting the certificate of experience in order for you to get your full registration and and become an FY2, will um, kind of training that's done during these four to, you know, three to four months as an interim, will that count towards that certificate? Going back to what I said before, you can only be in a provisionally registered post as as a new doctor and therefore only in an F1 programme. So it is capable of counting towards the outcomes. And then it's a matter for foundation schools to determine um, how they respond to that. I guess what people kind of feel the implication is, is that they will be potentially ready to have their full registration early next year. And will that have kind of a knock-on effect? And I suppose that perhaps is a decision that, that will come later on when we sort of see the situation this time next year. But I think that's a sort of a concern perhaps that people have is that they'll be again using air quotes stuck being f1s when they really feel that they're ready to be f2s yeah i mean i suspect that happens anyway you know um so f1 is a whole year there'll there'll be a proportion who are um probably achieving the outcomes ahead of the full year um so that you know that that kind of competence progression question I think is always out there of course um, if there's no F2 program job to go into 
there's no way to be able to progress. There's a bit of a kind of two-way piece in this. Um, there has to be something to move into, and I, I think we have to see how this pans out. It's very hard, I think, at the moment to predict how long the current circumstance will go on for. And it might actually be that having a slightly longer, slower-paced um, F1 period is actually more beneficial uh, to trainees in the longer run rather than feeling it's all got to be done inside the year, particularly if this rolls over, you know, even the resi- residue of this rolls over into August uh, or September, it is going to add to some of the challenges for some of the educational outcomes that are required where, where it may not be possible to get the structured learning experiences and so on. And I think that, um, you know, younger students are already concerned about what the implications are going to be um, for them. And I think it's very difficult. This is a conversation that we had on the episode of the podcast that we put out um, on Friday, which was also around, you know, slightly more around what medical students are doing to kind of help out. Um, And we spoke about how difficult it can be to come to terms with that level of uncertainty as a as a medical student because you're very much not taught to deal with things that are uncertain I think until I mean I've heard that when you when you're an actual doctor things become you know diagnoses and things like that become a lot less certain and and it becomes a bit easier to wrap your head around but very much when you're at medical school and you sort of are revising for multiple choice exams where you have to pick one answer that's the best answer it, it can be very difficult for people I think to just kind of sit tight and and live with that uncertainty it's a it's a very uncomfortable position to be in I suppose there's there's nothing really much that can be said about the implications for like I guess student it's a kind of a selfish question I suppose students like me who will be graduating in 2021 yeah I absolutely understand that um I think first of all that we need you know across faculties to think a bit more about how we help students to understand more about complexity and uncertainty um i i think you know i I think back to when even when i trained and i can still remember some of it it was very much a sort of you can always come up with a definite answer and the reality is probably uh, that that is increasingly less so so there is something about being confident in the uncertainty, but knowing how to address it. To the specific point about medical students, so we've already had some conversations with medical schools council. So the important thing here uh, is to minimise the likelihood that we that this time next year um, we could be faced with a cohort that couldn't graduate. That that absolutely must be avoided. So we've already started some uh, work and I know the medical schools are all looking at this because it is crucially important that we maintain the flow of graduates through the system. Um, So I think at the moment, that, um, and particularly because people uh, understandably and very gratefully, I would say, are volunteering. So that's awesome to see, but we need to balance that up with medical schools against continuing to progress through elements of the program that can be delivered but acknowledging that there may need to be some adjustments around particularly clinical placements I guess will be the will be the challenge but you know again we set the outcomes we don't prescribe how much time you have to spend in any clinical placement so I guess it's creating the environment when it becomes available 
um, for students to gain the clinical experience as, as, as I say, as best they can, um, bearing in mind that you've got um, cohorts of students who are now not been able to do what they should be doing this year and then next year you may have them plus the year coming behind them so so there are some challenges but we will continue to work through to make sure that you know the quality the quality of uh, education is high the standards are met and that our students who are still there can graduate on time uh, whether that's next year year after or whatever yeah i think that i've seen um i've seen some people worrying on on twitter that they'll be in they'll get into the position where they won't be ready to graduate next year so it's good to hear that that's kind of there's every priority there to ensure that the pipeline I guess is not you know because we're going to need F1s in 2021 we're going to need them in 2022. One of the things I've I've said I think repeatedly but maybe hasn't I haven't said enough is you know if you if you're a student and you've got concerns please 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 talk to someone in the medical school people are hugely aware of the challenges and the issues and we want to be able to be supportive and find the answers not to leave people feeling I mean I don't think we can get rid of the anxiety I I accept that but at least to try and provide some reassurance to students that we've we've got we've got this in hand we might not have an absolute blueprinted solution at this moment but we do understand the issues and we will ensure that they can be resolved. I think a lot of people are wanting to get answers about their specific personal circumstances and and as you say you know it's it's not quite as simple as you know we're, we're just going to make a decision about something because there's so many people who are involved and so many things that need to be spoken about and I think as well um there's perhaps not as much understanding amongst the medical student community as there might be that um a lot of clinical academics have also are also spending more time in practice now um so they may have less time for their their education roles so i think yeah it's it's i think that's a good thing for us to kind of communicate is that there are people there for you they just might be a bit busy at the moment yes and i think we all understand that don't we and so you know maybe maybe people are you know your colleagues are thinking well i can't ask that because so and so's busy well Look, maybe you can't answer now, but I'm just worried a bit about this. You know, the medical schools, I think, have have got great support structures, as, of course, have the universities themselves for student support. Uh, And we shouldn't ignore that those things exist. But yes, we're all in a very peculiar time, aren't we? You know, here we are having a, a discussion that we'd probably prefer to do face to face. And I don't know where you are. I'm in Yorkshire. <laughs> I, I'm in Kent, so... Yes, OK, we've, we've had to change a lot of what we do in very short order um, across the whole of, of healthcare and indeed across society. But I think, you know, by and large, we're making things work wherever we can. That doesn't mean everything is perfect, not by a long way, but credit to a huge number of people for their contributions. Yeah, I mean, like from a personal experience, I obviously don't don't really know what's going to happen in August when I go back to medical school, so I just emailed... Um, my head of year and I said look I know that this isn't your priority right now but if you could get back to me when you can um with any information that you've got and and I mean they replied within the day and said don't worry we we know that there's people who've taken a year out and we've got stuff in place for them um to come back and it's all going to be fine um so yeah I think there's there's like a tremendous amount of hard work being done and a tremendous amount of goodwill and people 
want people to feel cared about now so perhaps more than ever um so yeah I think I think that's been really positive uh, just from you know my kind of personal experience obviously can't speak for every single medical school um but my medical school has been has been very good in communicating with us so that's all my questions I had from finalists and other people who um have been in touch with me so I guess just to wrap up is there anything you would like to say that we haven't touched upon or any kind of messages to people who might be listening this is your opportunity to say something inspirational (laughs) no well first of all it's been uh, i count it a huge privilege um to be able to have the conversation with you and i genuinely hope we can help to reassure medical students and and our new graduates because i think this is a difficult time um if I was, I say this a lot, but I don't think it changes. And the most important thing, most important piece of advice I think I can give is to be kind to yourself. And the reason I say that is because there is emerging evidence now that actually the, the better place we're in, the better we are able to care for our patients. And that might seem really obvious. And I think that in in the kind of, energy to try and be helpful we may not be looking after ourselves as well as we ought to um so that you know i would say is that's my number one um i think you know people like michael west's report on caring for doctors caring for patients and his advice on abc which you can find in in the document um that he published in his review again really really important but it's all about you know trying trying to focus a bit on looking after yourself um, so that you can be more effective uh, in looking after the patients, whether that's in a volunteering role uh, or in a healthcare worker role or in a doctor role. applies in all those circumstances. So thank you so much to Colin from the GMC for joining us. I know our chat certainly cleared up some of the confusion in my own head about the role of the GMC and exactly how they're helping out med students at this time. I hope all our listeners have found it useful too. And that's all from this special episode of Sharp Scratch. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can check us out on social media. We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Sharp Scratch. For now, it's goodbye just for me.